Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Hello, this is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me as I have another authentic conversation with a player and character in the data center industry. Hopefully you were able to download some thoughts, ideas, and knowledge that will add value to your career and your life. Note that this podcast is a labor of love for me, unsupported by advertisers so that I am able to have an uninterrupted conversation free from distractions for you or commercial obligations for me. As such, I do have one request, and that is simply that you share this podcast far and wide with your peers and throw a hashtag I love data centers if you can while sharing on social media. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Thank you, everybody, for joining us once again for another episode of I Love Data Centers. This is Sean Terrio, and I have with me today Todd Cushing, who's out in Omaha, Nebraska is the president of 1623 Farnham, which is the fastest growing interconnection facility in Omaha in the Midwest. Uh, Todd, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, My pleasure, thank you for the offer. So there's a lot of different rabbit holes I wanna dig down with you given your background, uh, and especially given the stuff that I got going on these days, but um, let's start with the basics. Where are you today? And then if you could walk me through, where did you, where did you grow up? Okay. Well, I was um, today in a, um, uh, home office, uh, like a lot of folks, um, and, uh, got the, the clutter around me that the home office has. So it's a comfortable space for me. Um, but I, uh, I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska and, um, started my IT career in Omaha, Nebraska with, uh, First Data Corp, which was eventually First Data Resources, FDR back in the day. And what, what got you into tech? I know with all the different conversations, interviews I have, there's lots of people who come from lots of different arenas. And it's funny how many people who are executives in our industry actually have like music or archaeology backgrounds. Um, but what, what got you interested in tech? Was it around your house where your parents bringing computers home, what, what got you into the space or, or intrigued in how it all works? My, uh, my brother and dad had a CB radio and we had the a killer linear uh, amplifier on this thing. It was all like illegal. We could turn it on for a little bit. We had to shut it off. And they used to send me up on the roof to turn the antenna to tune it. Um, so my, my brother is a prodigy kind of a geek. He lives in the Carolinas and uh, he's still in that world, but he, he worked at First Data and said I should come on board. And so it was the call center side of um, the business. I got into call centers and worked with data center guys uh, as I worked my way up in my career to the management level in the call centers. This is all during high school. So like I was 16 years old when I started that gig and through DECA uh, programs, I was work- getting credits for working full time in my junior year in high school. So it was through that I worked with data center guys and thought they had a pretty cool deal. They got to wear white, white, uh, lab coats as they walked around the building nobody else had those so it was pretty pretty cool so what was did you come from a household with entrepreneurs i mean how what got you motivated to get out and get working uh, at such a young age uh, my dad was like if you don't work you don't eat 
And so literally I had jobs before that at 12 years old, washing dishes and mowing yards and three paper routes. And I just have always worked a lot of hours, worked hard and probably made sacrifices in life. Looking back, um, you know, a daughter had cancer and she was a survivor, but I missed out on things. I probably sacrificed. I just, I am addicted to work. Every time I've ever had a job, a career job, it's, um, I just, I just get engulfed in it. I breathe it. I live it and I can't help it. And my wife knows that. So it's a good partnership there, but that's, that's what happened was, uh, my dad was a white collar guy, uh, but he also was a hot rodder. So we had a 34 Ford pickup that I still have today. That was, we drag raced. So I was a motorhead mechanical guy. Um, but that, that tr- my brother being in tech kind of got me to, man, I can, it's kind of like working on cars, but you're in an air conditioned environment that's cleaner and it pays way better than being a mechanic. And I was, I was enthralled by, it was a mainframe shop with a big Rockwell Collins phone switch. And it was just really cool. Um, I remember walking in the data center with raised floor and a, a, a Star Trek door that slid open as I went in and I was like, wow, this is what, this is the coolest thing I think I've ever seen. It was, it was, it was a movement for me when I first walked in. Yeah, that's. I think that's a similar experience that a lot of us has had or have had, and why why we're in the space that we're in. Um, and then you took a track into the the real estate side of things. What what led to that shift in uh, in focus? So fast forward twenty eight years with First Data, um, I had these real estate guys from Seabury that were always wanting to meet for lunch and talk, and I didn't realize that their compensation structure was way different than a guy who got paid every two weeks. Um, until, you know, really no one of them after I left first data and they were looking for a guy in the Midwest that was in the flyover country, as everybody called it. And, um, uh, a guy named Jason was running the data center group for, for Seabury at the time. And, uh, and so I went out to see him to see if that's what I wanted to do in California and, and, um, decided to be the middle guy. So I was, there's already smart guys in California and guys in Denver and people in Dallas and people in, in Chicago. And, but there were no, there was nobody that knew Indiana, Missouri, Kansas, North Dakota, South Dakota, all in Nebraska, Iowa. And so I became, I tried to become the best I could that guy. And um, I worked with a lot of other brokerage firms and was uh, the first year, I think I made $12,000. My wife was like, really? Um, and then, uh, figured it out. And then, uh, you know, I worked with a, a lot of people and did a lot of trade shows and spent 98% of the time on the road by the time I'd done that for 10 plus years. But I was a tenant rep, uh, person, uh, representing a lot of people. But LinkedIn, uh, I left first in in 2008. Uh, LinkedIn was, uh, was one of the first clients I worked with in Omaha. And so I linked in with a lot of people that we had laid off or fired at first data through the cutback years and um, was able to link in with friends globally. And that network and friends and community that we have in our world is what saved my bacon, uh, made it so I could make a living, uh, was that was that LinkedIn happened when it happened and I was lucky enough to get exposed to it in Omaha. Gotcha. And the, uh, have you seen from that side of the house, because it's only a couple of years ago that you left CBRE, um, how has the obviously the number of people who are fluent in the data center world has increased, um, but on the real estate transaction side of the house, what other 
differences have occurred over the last you know five ten years that you've seen in that space? I was uh, odd duck in that I was an operations person that could that knew why capacity planning happened and what drove the need. So I sort of consulted for free and tried to help out on the real estate side and then grew, I grew trust. And what I find now is there are teams that are built within the different houses that do what they do. And so they have experts that can do different niches of what they need, pull them in, pull them out. And they're really good and really efficient at it. And the other thing I find is when I look at some of the capital sources, they are really good as well at building the models and the financials around why you might do this or might do that. So it used to be site selection and um, it had to be a research junkie on risk in telecom and power and incentives and have a network of people you could get stuff from. And now it's these teams have a lot of this built in to their super group and they, they hunt globally. They don't just hunt like, hey, I own Chicago. They're typically hunting nationally, globally, in my opinion. And when you say, when you're speaking about that, are you talking about the teams internally at clients or are you talking about the teams internally the likes of CBRB the, or Dale or Colliers? Sorry about that. Was it clear? So yeah, within Colliers or other houses, CBRE, there are really smart, good people, leaders that are, you know, SIOR, senior broker type people that have assembled teams of geeks underneath them. And they knocked down some pretty impressive transactions. Some of them, you know, last week or two hit the, hit the press that they were, these, these folks have been involved in. They still track it really close. Um, I don't know I ever won't, but it's, it's interesting to see how the level of detail they can get to and how accurate they are on the comps and, how, you know, their, the research that they do and that the way they network to be pretty close. Uh, if not 100% accurate, but they're pretty close as to what the, multiple in that business should be or what the what that deal went at down at it's it's um it's pretty neat to see how they serve their clients yeah yeah the the real estate brokers especially cbre they, they seem to be they realized early on that this was going to be a hot uh industry and have been doubling down tripling down quadrupling down um within their departments to bring those smart people into the organization uh, and be able to attack it from so many different levels. When I heard that they were starting to build IT teams to help support um, and add value beyond just the real estate transactional commercial side, but be able to talk about network and uh, phone systems and all the other components that may go into a deal. uh, That's when it made me realize that these guys were not just thinking like traditional real estate um, brokers, Um, though obviously the transaction is important. Um, they saw that there was more value that could be added to that conversation and they, they wanted to start adding that value. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, a good example. We were working with a large railroad in Oman and, and we had a, um, I had a person from 451 I was working with and CBRE brought the guy over mid deal and it totally freaked the railroad out. They felt like CBRE was sometimes it was a disadvantage to be that big. And they felt like we were, we had all sides of the deal cornered and it was like, I knew it happened and I didn't. Uh, just for a lot of reasons, they didn't, you know, people's careers are getting changed around. And so they didn't tell me that I was working the account. And um, it was pretty cool to have the power of a, of a 451 smart person be able to come on and then work network. And we were working latency and figuring out what that the company isn't really like a railroad. They're more like a logistics company and what the latency should be and who their competitors are and how disaster recovery should work and all that kind of stuff. And that's just part of doing brokerage for somebody like that. So 
but it was it was awesome to have them acquire somebody like that that much that much horsepower to ride blood alongside me and make it so we were we weren't just good we were great at what we delivered on that yeah. for that particular client so my my expertise has always been not on the hey I want to buy an entire data center facility or you know develop uh, a property on a on a plot of land um, and get involved in the real estate side of the transaction. It's been more around what type of data center would be the best fit uh, within this market, this region. You know what are the supply demand economics within a market or region, um, and then how do we best go about filling the property once once you have it and. Um, so the, that side of the house that you've been playing in has always been, uh, different. Uh, you know, people might look at it as all relatively the same, you know, as you know, and I know there's so many niches in this space that, uh, there's a lot of difference between selling retail co-location, uh, and selling whole facilities. And even the difference between wholesale and retail <laughs> co-location As I know, Digital Realty Trust learned the hard way a couple years back prior to purchasing Telex and even post purchasing Telex. Um, but one of the key things I did learn and have seen play out over and over and over again, even within CBRE, is you'll have these teams of very smart people on the data center side, network side, whatever it might be. But they tend to be hoarders. They tend not want to, to share what they have going on with others for fear that they may have to split or share you know, commissions in a deal. Um, and I've seen that play out at JLL. I've seen it play out at CBRE and Colliers. Um, I'm just curious what... Like what is in place? The culture is such that, you know, understandably you eat what you kill, right? So you want to keep as much of uh, what you're killing uh, so that you can eat as much as possible and not have to share uh, as much. So people are reluctant to bring in outside expertise. But um, what, if anything, has been put in place to encourage um, brokers to be a little bit more open to work with the other units within the organization that they may have to share resources with. I think that uh, that's, that's an evolution that's always taking place because as the teams have bigger overhead or as they have more mouths to feed on the team, they feel sometimes that, Hey, this is, I've got a bigger mouth to feed and you're like, look, well, I'm in this area or I know this client, I, I brought you in. So there's a negotiation that happens, but once you set the negotiation, the deal proceeds forward where there used to be, I think back in the day, a little retrading that happened based on, hey, I felt like I did more work. So you win some, you lose some. And I think for me, it was always, I paid or uh, split bigger usually, uh, maybe a deal or two where we had to negotiate. Uh, it just got, where somebody got a little greedy um, in my opinion, but we, we typically would lock in and make sure we're paying somebody more than fair. And then we move forward. That's, that's early on in the deal before really the deal even happens. Um, and as you pull somebody in, you say, if we split, when we split, if we bring in more resources for the good of the client, we're not gonna argue about this stuff. It's already figured out. So I think that uh, Pat running the team has encouraged a lot of people to figure that out up front. So you don't have to, it's not what you're you're, you're working on every day. You're working with the client uh, data every day, not your fee. So the fee is, you know, there's going to be other deals and other things. And if you do a good job of that client, there'll be other transactions or your reputational build from that. You're going to learn things as you work on every deal. But hopefully it answers your question. But I think the lock in on the fee and then move on is what happens more so. Is it, wasn't it the case that um, CBRE also started just paying people salaries to serve as technical experts and advisors so that they weren't necessarily dependent on um, the transaction? 
there's a there's different structures. A lot of times people will get a salary and then they'll get a piece of the deal or a smaller percentage, but they get to have some of the win to get shared. Right. Um, but there'll be, yeah, some of the deep technical that they maybe move around between regions or they'll, they'll have on a team, um, that they'll share their salary maybe between Chicago and LA. And I'm not saying those markets do that. I'm just using it as an example. But if they were to share, you know, super smart people between big tier one markets, because it just keeps them busy and also keeps them sharper because they get to see more. Um, the, all of that is those teams pay for that and the salary is what's happening. And then they often will share a little bit of wind with them is what happens. Gotcha. All right. So let's go backtrack here to the evolution of, of the career of Todd and you're, you're at CBRE. I'm assuming you're probably doing fairly well, but you're, you get an appetite to, you know, get a little bit more targeted on a specific project. What can you walk us through the story of, of what happened there and why you chose to, to leave and go over to Nebraska data centers? Sure. So I, I was uh, aware of Nebraska data center 1623 when I was at first data and I was aware of it at CBRE and I thought it was a big pile of poop and it needed to be fixed. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm 57 this October. So I thought, you know, it'd be really cool to knock one out and leave it. And it'll be really cool for maybe 10 or 15 years or whatever. But, you know, sometimes they go even longer than that. But it'll be really cool to build a long-term, really good project. And so um, I was at the uh, Mandarin in uh, Washington, D.C. for, I think it was like a IMN conference. And talking to a, a friend of mine that was one of the folks that helped found QTS and he he was like, you know, you and I you and I should try to buy that, try to make a run at it. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up CBRE. I'm traveling way too much. It's it's crazy. I'm too engulfed in this thing. I, I, I can't get the jetpack off. Um, I'm gonna get back into operations because I miss it. I miss. Uh, I like to do a remodel. I've done greenfields and rebuilds, and a rebuild in an existing data center is just to me where it's at. Uh, it's up and running. And so I think we can fix this. It'd be really cool to leave it better than you found it. And so let's do this. Well, he pittered out and didn't have the the gut strength to actually do the change. Quit his job. I quit my job, but I I did for three or four months. Traveled to see the people that owned it and made it. Talked to them. I brought in a partner. Made an offer. The financials were totally wrong. And then um, they said, "I said I can't. Your numbers are crazy." So then we backed away from the deal and they said, came back to me and said, would you come to work for us and help us fix it, market it, and we'll give you a piece of the action when that happens. So talked to the wife and um, talked to CBRE and said, this is what I think I want to do. And uh, they were very cool about letting me unwind what I had going on. And um, the wife was very supportive and uh, it's been a lot of hours and it's, it's crazy again and, it's, and I'm happy and I couldn't be happier. Uh, we, we ran a process through a financial partner after, let me back up a little bit. The owners, um, we put an offer in to purchase first and, uh, said to open this last. And so they let us do that. And then, uh, they opened ours and said, they felt like we were, we knew what we were buying. We wouldn't retrade. And so they let us have a run to go find a financial partner. And so we, we engaged a financial broker money house to help us. Uh, run a process quickly. We had about 60 days to find a partner and close it. And um, 
so that's what we did. We we were lucky enough to find the the NPG folks and Bill and Tim and the group, and uh, it's their Midwestern. They're they've owned data centers. They'd sold data centers, so it wasn't like they were going to freak out over the cost of an air handler or a UPS system. They they understood interconnection. They understood the value that was there, and so I've got a partner that every day gets it and understands what we're trying to do. And just today, we were working on closing a deal, which we got done before this call. And the advice I got from that team helped me think better than I would otherwise think. So I've got a true partnership, a true money partner. Um, super happy that guys that we were doing, two, two existing guys were at MDC longer than me, uh, ultimately chose to leave before we got to this point. So one within a few months and one within a year. But we're working crazy hours and doing extreme things and doing just we're grinding and we're killing it. And that I love it. And uh, that's not what they wanted to do. They weren't at that point in their life, but that's what they wanted to do. Did I yeah. answer your question with all that jabber? No, no, no. That was great. Okay. Um, okay. And did, you, did you say NTT? NPG. NPG Co. is a company, News Press Gazette company out of St. Joe, Missouri. They are the owners. I'm a, it's like owning your first house. I have a small piece of equity. They have, they have it's their money, their, their thing, their, their guiding the ship relative to as a partner. Um, but they that their checks are good and their input is great. And so that's, they really own 1623 Farnham. I, I get to be a partner and, you know, that kind of things, but I, I'm not, uh, I, I don't lose perspective that they're writing toward, you know, money that the money they put in dwarfs what I've got in. Gotcha. So why why go through the process of changing the name then from Nebraska data centers to 1623 Farnham? Or are they two that's separate? A, that's a good question. So the company had multiple names and they were for the interconnection business, the colo business, and the multi-tenant aspects of the building at that time. And so what we did was we looked at what other interconnection or carrier hotels do, which they use our addresses. That's what the carriers know them as. Uh, I think when we did that, we didn't have full appreciation for hyperscale folks that have global relationships and what that means to them to change some guy in Omaha's address or name. Um, but we we did it and we've been working through it. There's been a few pains in changing rebranding, but I think it better long term depicts who we are. We are 1623 Farnham. That's what even globally people know us as. Gotcha. So short term, the goal is focus on that one asset um, and just make that as, as successful as possible. Agreed. We have definitely looked at some other assets. We've done a little traveling, checked out some assets. We haven't found the perfect uh, asset. So I think we're looking at that tier two, tier three market. Good fit. Um, so there could be others, but the the clear focus day to day right now is to make 1623 awesome, uh, operationally, electrically, mechanically, et cetera, and grow the business because uh, it's active. But we're also, we have made some trips to look at other facilities and just haven't found the right one yet. Gotcha. And what, what are the guts of that facility look like? Is it both commercial and data center or is it all data center? How big? Um, walk us through the, the details. Sure. So it's a 76,000 foot gross uh, building on a corner in Omaha. On a, it's on a hill and it's a, um, it was built as a bank in 1973. So it had uh, accountants that wanted to be in downtown. We were, we were near the courthouse. So you had attorneys in there. 
you had um, various small businesses that maybe wanted some interconnection uh, play back in the day, but not weren't leveraging it for what it is today. And so we had certifications we needed to get, so making the security better and all that was was part of asking those folks to leave, which we did. And we also knew the building had a lot of asbestos in it, and we were going to have to abate the building. So having a bunch of attorneys watch us through asbestos wasn't awesome. So we thought it'd be better to have them not in the building as we went through. Uh, we did hire uh, colliers to actually manage the abatement part of it and the asbestos part of it because our general contractor really didn't want to address that piece of it. So the demo and the abatement has been done by a partnership through colliers, which so kind of shows I'm not just a CBRE guy. Uh, they were managing the building before we kept them on, and they've done a good job of doing that abatement. Uh, we hired a general contractor that is the same general contractor that is uh, working with uh, one of the hyperscales near us, and uh, it, it made good sense to use somebody they were comfortable with. But the building itself is, um, it was about 885 KW with a network to downtown electrical service. It's going to, it's today has four two megawatt transformers under the sidewalk that are submersible grade, uh, four separate circuits off of a network substation. So we will be, we anticipate about five and a half, six megawatts of load, the uh, 700 kW UPS per floor. So we are at three floors that were semi data center. Um, one of them really was data center, kind of humble beginnings for that was full. And we have, um, uh, transform three floors and we've got two more there in uh, demo abatement and restoration phase but we're doing the whole building so there's nobody else in the building but us we own it we're changing the facade on the front for better security and flow of the building as you come in and a new knock on that floor by security and a um, you know a break room and the kind of stuff that people expect to see in a data center that has some snacks and food and things in there Post-COVID, I don't know if people want to eat those snacks anymore, but that's what we were thinking at the time. So the the recent focus on interconnection uh, and the existing carriers on net, like wh- what was the history there that brought carriers to the building in the first place? And what um, it, walk me through the history of that of that facility itself as sure. a interconnection you know point in in Omaha and the the Midwest region. So this uh, DARPA net, uh, defense net, if you read the book Tubes, uh, they have they talk about it going from Berkeley to NORAD and went up Farnham Street. So Farnham is the interconnection across the world of the U.S., uh, repeating at 1623 Farnham or near it. And the MCI folks back in the day took down the fourth floor. And so with evolution, Verizon's got a... Uh, a good relationship with us, but we have, there was, it was a, the first real tenant in that building was probably MCI Verizon that others came to be by. And AT&T was just up the street around the corner of the now CenturyLink. Um, we have, there was, it's interesting as we're on the corner of 17th street. Um, but 16th street is where everybody else was really at one block down a little lower grade than we are. And somebody wanted to build a parking garage there and told about a dozen carriers to get out because he wanted to put a parking garage there. That's funny, you know, this is in the mid eighties. And so they kicked everybody out and they moved them up the street to our to the building 1623 Farnham because they decided, well, if we're gonna leave there, we're gonna go up where MCI is at. And so the bank was on that network power. They knew it had 
unusual architectural security features, good, good strong bones. But it was uh, it was somebody wanting a parking garage that made everybody move up the street that made 1623 Farnham really happen. That makes a lot of sense. It's funny how um, I mean, it's funny, but it's it's not because you just hear so many people back in the 80s and 90s who just had no idea how valuable um, data and data connection, interconnection and data centers were going to be. And I know a lot of people are, are kicking themselves and turning over in their grade graves for uh, losing out on those opportunities. So it sounds like you've got a, a solid asset in a, a market that is scaling and growing. Can you, can you talk to me about that? The Omaha market? I mean, people generally don't think of Omaha as a, you know, a great scaling, growing marketplace. Uh, and I'm not saying, I do because I, I've been looking at tier two, tier, tier three markets for a while now um, and see the opportunity there. But walk people through what that opportunity looks like in that market and why it's unique and valuable, out, you know, even though it's not Chicago or it's not Denver. Um, I, think, I think that's a good perspective that people need to understand. Sure. So the, if you think of the middle of the U.S. and people, you know, being from Omaha, when I hear the Ohio folks that I love, except for in college football, um, the guys that I love and know, they're, uh, they talk about being Midwestern. I think that Omaha is the Midwest. We're right in the middle. And so geographically, we have had, I think for that reason, our, we're cold in the winter, our power is cheap. And so we've had hyperscale show up. So we've got, you know, Facebook's got... I think they just got another 330 acres, but they've got several million square feet of H's built in, in Omaha. And they've got 130 miles, 35 miles to the east in Des Moines, uh, a large build as well. Uh, Google's got, uh, you know, the rumor is so with the rumor is that they've got a thousand megawatts in Council Bluffs. They've got, you know, three or 400 megawatts nine miles southwest of us on, uh, in Omaha, and they've got 560 acres in Lincoln, 45 minutes to the west of us. And then uh, you've got three Microsoft data centers in Des Moines, and you've got Apple building uh, Waukee, to, which is closer to Omaha, on kind of west Des Moines. So it's all following I-80 uh, back and forth and right away for Union Pacific and other railroads. If your carriers or you know 50 plus people you could buy things from actually have cabinets in our facilities as the, the mark we say for who's in the facility there's you know 50 people you could buy that have network that gear in there um and others that come through that don't um so I'll call out gtt or something like that that doesn't have they come through with your mammoth but they don't have gear there so you can't buy from them so they're not on our list but there's a lot of those as well so anyway we have a ecosystem has been built because of those hyperscale that don't want people in their facility, but they want to be on their network. So they want to be in our facility or as close to their network as they can. So we're not, we're the first, I think, on ramp for, for Google uh, and we had Megaport come in and put in dual connectivity for our facility because they saw the value in being in the middle. But we've seen a, a large uh, push for fiber also. So as I look at other interconnection facility, I think we're going to bring another 2,000 fiber before the end of the year yet of people pulling in new connectivity, new fiber. So the reason it's important is if you're going from Chicago, New York, really to the West Coast, you're probably coming through Omaha and there are new routes now that go from Chicago direct to Omaha or a new route from, I think, Telia is going from 
from uh, us to Denver that's diverse. And uh, I think uh, Optic has one as well. But I think the telly has got the one coming from Chicago down. I was misspoke and Optic's going out to uh, Denver. So there's these new diverse routes that are that are different that people see they're cutting the corners. So they're not going all the way south down to Kansas City. Their latency matters. And going through the Dakotas isn't super, there aren't a lot of choices. Um, but we have, we're the hub and spoke. So we have a lot of people that, that want to connect where the shortest latency is, where there's a lot of connectivity and um, east to west, or if you're going even from Atlanta up to Chicago or Minneapolis, it's a good chance you're coming through Omaha. That makes a ton of sense. And I've been, uh, as you've been talking, I've been pulling up the map and digging around and looking at how close you are to St. Louis, um, which I know is another super hot market uh, right now, scaling and growing with not too many players in that, in that um, region. I can't, I literally can't think off the top of my head of any major um, national data center providers that have much of a presence in and around Omaha right now. I mean, what, what does the competition even look like in your market if there is any? So we, from an interconnection facility, there isn't any. Uh, there are, there, you know, tier points got up facilities, a couple of facilities in town and Light Edge and First National Technology Solutions has one. And then uh, there are Cyrus is building uh, in Council Bluffs, kind of you know, connected to our facility, but they are uh, they're a new player to the market. So there's, there's you talked about hyperscale and what drives them to different markets. You know, tier one, what's what's the circle uh, around that facility to fill it? How you going to fill it is important when you look at hyperscale. I was surprised that a hyperscale name would ever come to our market because you have to fill it. And so it wasn't for the hyperscale folks that could could put some of the bigger deals into a facility like that. It wouldn't it wouldn't make sense for them to probably come here. They would stay in tier one or maybe a emerging tier two. Um, so we're we're a real strong enterprise market. Um, there are financials and insurance companies that have their their data centers here, railroads that have data centers here. But there are uh, the hyperscale is not something I would think would come here. But uh, yeah, a lot of there's you know tier point would probably be the biggest one that would be in the market. But they're not they're not an interconnection facility like like what we are. Right, right. That's not, uh, that's not their play. Yeah, I forgot that Tierpoint did have a pop in that market. Um, so the focus, are you still doing basic retail co-location deals in that facility as well? Or is, is the focus really just on the uh, trying to bring as many carriers as possible into the building? So we, we've, have, we've had uh, good luck with the relationships helping the hyperscale guys, again, the, their their vendors, their partners, uh, cloud storage providers, on ramp partners of of the hyperscale are who are are really you know chunky deals are. We have medical um, providers, hospitals, networks in our facility, so there's there's certainly colo growth there. We are uh, about 145, 150 cabinets per floor at you know, 5 kW is what we thought we were going to be at, 700 kW per floor, but we're finding, you know, 20 kW is what some of these folks are bringing me per cabinet. And that is the, that's the need. And so we're using hot oil containment and, and name brand stuff to build it out using a lot of the same components they're using in their facilities and a lot of the same vendors that they use 
contractors to build our facility that they use. So they're real comfortable with what we're doing security wise and build out wise, but it's, it's the, um, it's the capability to be flexible, I guess is where I was going with that ramble is that though you design for five, you just go with a few less cabinets and you can make it work. We've got enough airflow to do that, but we, we, we never know what people are going to bring us. Yeah. It's the flexible. Of, the, of the retail co-location uh, operation. Um, yeah. Are customers who are, are bringing in 20 though, are they actually using 20? Because I, I found over 50% of the time a customer says that they need, you know, 20, 30, 40 KW. Uh, and then when it really comes down to it, they're only using, you know, maybe four to, to eight KW. Um, so that, that is exactly where you and I, we are cut from the same cloth. I'm like thinking there's no way. Well, these folks have virtualized, they've been through it, they've engineered it. And we've had a mixture of people wanting to send their, their things to us. And then they, because of COVID, they want us to stack it. So we get a real good visual as to blank out plates and you know what what containment we're using and how it's put together and how heavy it is on the floor which we manage as well and then we then we have guys that send cabinets that are mostly full you know ballasted to the bottom and then we rack the top for them but it's it's um it's interesting they're hitting those numbers so these folks are not far off of what they're saying so we we expected them to come in and be you know just exactly what you said you'll never use it and you have to be very careful because they're going to use it. These folks know what they're doing. They're pretty smart and they don't, they've gotten everybody sharpen their pencils and cutting a deal with, as you, as you know. And so they are, they're pretty astute at knowing exactly where they're at. And so it's, it's multiple phases of a project and those cabinets are coming in pretty darn close to what they said they were going to use. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, uh, you know, that's good to hear because uh, it simply means that people are getting smarter um, when they, they're going about, making these deployments. I can't tell you how many times I've had to coach clients through plate ratings and what plate ratings are and how plate ratings don't necessarily equate to what they're actually going to use. And you have to look at the applications that are being used on the device and in the system. Um, and are they running nine to five or 24 seven, 365? And, you know, is the server that you're deploying fully loaded? Is it not fully loaded? Um, which all ties into power consumption. Um, but, you know, as we all know, engineers, tend to think that they know all things about everything. And if they're talking to people like us who, for whatever reason, they think we're sales guys, even though we're, we're not salespeople or engineers who are just trying to coach them through a solution, um, they you know, tend not to want to listen to us. So, um, but it's, been, it's, been, it's good to hear that people are actually starting to get smarter and using the power that they, they say that they're going to be using. Um, one of the other key questions I have that I constantly get from people who are new coming into the industry uh, is what, you know, what I would recommend for them. Um, and I'll save my answer and let you kind of give your answer. But, you know, let's say a friend of yours has a, a son or a daughter who's coming out of college and wants to get in the data center industry. Um, what advice would you give them? You know, it's changed in that we used to have to cut our teeth and kind of show that we learned something and how much time you spend in the space for your pedigree uh, to learn something. I tend to want to go deep and master, then move on. I don't know that you have to go deep and master and move on. I think it's it's more important that you learn the business of the business and get the technical under your belt as well. But if you're going to get the technical, I don't know that you, unless that's really what you're drawn to, I think if you can be a geek that can speak, you're going to have a better career and be better off than to be wrap your head all around storage administration, you know, something like that. Network is great. I'm not 
throwing rocks at folks that do that. But if that's if you depends on what your goal is, you could look on to have uh, be, become global and add value to a company. Be the geek that can speak um, as as best you can. That would be my advice. Yeah, I call it the the language of the industry. Um, when you're talking about the business of the business, uh, learning that language is is paramount because it will apply no matter where you fit or sit in relation to the industry, whether you're an engineer, you're an executive, you're in finance, whatever. Um, and to that end, you know, one of my favorite stories is when I was working at QTS, I was talking to the accounting team uh, back in the day and there was, you know, issues with um, the bills that were going out to customers and, and whatnot. And, and uh, I asked a simple question to our accounting team, which was, have you guys ever even stepped foot inside of the data center? And the unequivocal answer at the time was no, they had not. And I said, okay, well, do me a favor. <laughs> Go get someone, get a sales rep, get a sales engineer, get your facilities manager who's in the facility that you're working out of to go tour you through the data center. Let them rip open the tile and see the products that you are putting in the line items for these invoices so that you can understand what it is that your customers are asking for um, and what we're asking you to do within these invoices. And that was a paradigm shift within that department. Um, and we found you know, within my team out on the West Coast, uh, who was dealing with a finance team out of the Midwest, that the number of calls and questions and concerns that we had dropped dramatically as a result of the employees on the accounting team simply finally having a visual understanding of exactly what the heck it was, that the products and services that they were billing their customers for. You know, Sean, I would add to that. If you, you, know, if you also look at what depreciated value used to be for servers, how long they would last versus a generator before EPA things changed, you know, the life you push to put on chillers and things like that and how that changed. But if you can get finance and IT people to understand that, so the IT people tell the finance people when they make changes, so the two hands are talking, because when they see it on a PO, they don't necessarily know what they're looking at. So it's important that they, they share and help each other. Yeah, I mean... Funny enough, right? Communication helps solve problems with uh, between. <laughs> yeah. Um, so related to that, the infrastructure that you have in the building uh, within that facility, do you manage, maintain, and own it? Like, is it a is it a staff that you guys have on payroll, or is this uh, contracted out? Because um, I find a lot of shifts and changes going on in how data center owner operators are choosing to manage um, things like security, maintenance on their generators, and, and um, even the 24-7, 365 data center operations staff. Um, what does that look like? And maybe speak to how you've seen that evolve over your career. Yeah, I think for 1623, we own it, operate it, and are responsible for it, except for on the security, we have a third party that's uh, ISO certified command center that watches us at night and off hours. We've got somebody during the day that we contract. It's the same person. We've had them for a few years. Uh, whether or not we would bring that person on or make that ours, it's um, it's not our core focus. And as long as we've got process and procedures and automation around him, we feel pretty good. But if, if he's got to be gone or there's something happening, we can have somebody back him up. 
or we want to you know, bounce in something's going on in the neighborhood that we want to bounce in more security for a period of time, or if we've got commissioning going on, we need to have some doors open, they can flex up easier than we can. And having a relationship with a security guy, it makes it better for me, I think, right now. Um, that, but I think on the other side for operations, network, we do our own uh, fiber splicing and fusion splicing and building the tools and certifications for our the team to do that because of the business of the interconnection that we're in. So we're, we rack and stack and do those kind of things, but we're not a, we're not a services group and that we traditional what a colo would do. We don't provide those kind of services. We're space power facilities interconnection focused. So it's easy to do that in house. I think and be certified in the places you need to be or your, based on what your client's feedback is where you need to be. It's not like we don't throw a broad net that way. Um, I think that we're, you, you know, you look at people that will outsource two different, uh, professional companies that can run the facilities. I see that trend. I see it in, in the, um, enterprise a lot more than I do probably Colo, in my opinion. So a lot of the enterprises uh, around, you know, the art, the, the, the metro or people that way I kind of follow, I've seen them outsource their facilities team. Um, but we, we, we do not have any plans to do that. So that that's good. That makes sense. Uh, the the evolution of our industry now is where I'm I'm interested because I feel like there's a lot of um, growth going on. Obviously, I still believe that our industry is an infant as it's in, in relation to uh, where we're going and where it will be in in the future. And a lot of people ask me, well, how how is the data center industry evolving? Um, and it's evolving, obviously, through growth metrics, which I think are obvious if you look at any of the numbers uh, across almost every single market in every region. Um, but how, would, how do you answer that question when people say, how do you see the industry evolving over the next uh, you know, few years, if not even a decade into the future? I think there's going to be more and more fiber, more and more interconnection. I think that you know, we saw what W Wavelength Divisional did for the, the optics side. There'll be other breakthroughs, I think. There will be more connectivity, interconnection. The cabinet density is going to go up and up. I'm convinced of it after you know seeing what we're seeing come in on the floor. Um, storage is going to change. You know, just a burst. The cloud is going to be everything. So the hybrid, the hybrid cloud and mobile cloud that people have are going to become normal and accepted. You know, we're seeing it on the financials, which are the guys that were we're saying, hey, I've got an enterprise, I've got to have one forever. It's my core business, but they're they're putting that to the cloud. So I, I think that the the smart cars, the smart highways, the Internet of Things, we're gonna be tracking so much more data and it's gonna be critical that you can get to it in milliseconds and microseconds. And you're gonna store a lot of the data for as you get to that next exit, you know, your milk's gonna be on sale, your gas is cheap, and we know you're low on gas or battery charge or whatever it is. I just think there's going to be so much more stuff that we're going to track. Um, you know, back in the day, we saw video go to high, you know, to high density video, what that did to storage and, you know, video conferencing. And it's just going to be a better and better. And there's things that we haven't thought of yet, Sean, that are going to be super cool that we're going to be using interconnection and, and data to do it, in my opinion. Yeah, that's um, part of what we've been telling people is, you know, when people talk about Moore's law and how Moore's law is kind of starting to level out, um, 
but they say, you know, isn't that going to make it such that, that there's a leveling off of demand and need for network and, and storage capacity? Um, and the response that I have is as connectivity becomes more ubiquitous and you can push more traffic faster uh, around the world and the ability to uh, the computational um, capabilities also increase uh, over time that creates uh, the ability for new applications that we haven't even thought of yet, which is exactly what you just said, right? Um, those are going to come out, which will create more demand and more need in ways that we can't even think of. Um, and I think we continue to see that over and over and over and over again. Um, so that that is, I think, definitely playing out in the industry. The other topic I was curious what your advice and feedback would be about is... Um, if you're, if you are, you know, going back to the original question about people coming up into the marketplace and into the industry, um, where's a good starting point for them? Uh, I do get that question a lot is like, where, where do I even cut my teeth? Um, and how do, how do I get started? Uh, what would your advice be for, for those who may even be coming from outside of the industry in the, into the industry? Um, you know, with, anyway, I could, I could keep going on there, but what's your advice to that extent? Yeah. It's funny as we've been doing the remodel, we've had trades people in the hallway ask me that question. And, um, I'm on a board for, uh, Bellevue university in Omaha for their, their business side to try to help them develop what, what we need for next smart, smart people. And they asked that question I, and I, I'm like for the electricians and fitters, they're, they're already touching. Uh, connectivity. If they can learn how to do fiber, if they can learn how to run fiber, they can get into that side of it as opposed to the electrical, or they can become a facilities person and then work their way into the IT side. That's how they might get there. On the on the college business side, it's if you can if you can learn the the metrics that you need for facilities equipment, for telecom, for incentives how how what's important to a data center for an interconnection or a, a carrier on the finance side or for logistics um i know you had jim grice on here before and he's got a ton of knowledge in that space as an attorney so that's a guy that would be a game of an attorney as an attorney became a geek so there's there's all kinds of angles that even an attorney could switch over and become a data center person or a contributor to the data center there's there's a lot of there's a lot of places we need help, and if you want to get specific to that uh, place and get really good at it, uh, you're going to build yourself a, a name. I think if you're just really good at what you do and, and meet the metrics and, and meet the timelines and keep your promises, you're going to you can make a career just about any any piece of it. Yeah, it's great advice, uh, excellent advice, and I keep trying to explain to my kids, I got three young kids, 14, 11, and seven now. Uh, and I keep trying to tell them that it's not about exactly what it is that you're learning. It's about learning how to learn, um, which I think carries over into our industries. I see too many people who just get stagnant. They keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And they uh, may have been successful doing that for a couple of years, but it doesn't seem to work for them. But, you know, they're getting by. Um, and if they're comfortable just getting by without rethinking or retooling, then that's their prerogative, but that's just not how I operate. <laughs> and nor is it the, how I want the people who work with me and are around me to operate. And I'm sure you probably, I, I can just imagine given your background that you probably have a very similar attitude. 
yeah, it's easy to quit is what I tell my kids. Um, so my youngest is now 30 and, you know, he, he owns a, a very successful landscaping company. But my, my deal is that on your worst day, um, tomorrow's going to be a better day. And don't quit. When other people would quit, would fold, would think that they can't get there, um, you, can, you can push away and come back to it. So I, I have found that if I choose not to decide, then I'm usually better off. So if I don't feel like I should make a decision, I don't. I will push back and decide not to decide. And that frustrates my wife. But that's 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 a core core thing I found works for me. So talk to me about Omaha, Nebraska, because I've known a handful of people who are there. I had a, a good friend of mine in college who grew up there. I've actually visited Omaha. Um, my grandfather, who was a developer back in the day, um, helped build a property down in Omaha. And I'm... Uh, ashamed to say that I forget exactly which property it was. Um, but he, he drove me through it one time on one of our many cross country trips from Chicago to California. Um, but Omaha, if you just look at it from above, from a map, it's gorgeous. It's got the river that runs through it. It's got a lot of green spaces. Um, you know, people generally just think of Omaha corn huskers, right. And they think of it just being flat and nothing and nothing's there and that it's just farm, for as far as you can see, but what you've stayed in Omaha, you grew up in Omaha. Talk to me about Omaha. Why Omaha? So Omaha was uh, Lewis and Clark passed through here. The, the Mormon trail kind of came through here. The river is embraced by Omaha. So it's funny. I tease my friends in Kansas city. They act like it's not there. So you, you will not find a venue in KC where they're, they're up on the river. Um, but I, I find that we are, you know, some people in Nebraska will refer to us as river people. Uh, and that's not in a positive way. But we're we are across the river from Council Bluffs, and Council Bluffs was a little older than Omaha because people had trouble crossing the river. And then uh, in the 1870s, really, is when Omaha started to become a thing. And then uh, so Farnham, the top of the hill where we're at, is kind of where the Gulf Coast District was, and where the, the, the happened and rich people were at back in that time frame. So there were there were you know, big Omaha names. Storage Brewing was a was a big deal in Omaha. So we we are rolling hills. Uh, there are a lot of um, maple trees and some oaks and things like that through here, but we don't have a ton of color like the Northeast might have. And we are cold in the winter. So we really will see 20 below um, and wind chills of 40, 50 below and 40 mile an hour winds. So we will see brief periods of a week or two of maybe 100 degrees, a little over that, but humid because of the crops and farmland around Omaha. But we also see winds and cold come off the prairies and hit Omaha. And Omaha is about a million people, uh, plus in the metro, if we include a 50-mile radius. And so there's people that want to commute from smaller communities into Omaha. And, uh, you know, we've got you know, colleges and things that are, that are uh, you know, the, the, that have grown and developed and listened to what the business community is looking for so we can find people within Omaha or people that want to be here that want to leave a bigger city to with a good life of Nebraska and or Iowa. And um, the commute is not a big deal. So I'm nine minutes from the data center to my house. And if you had to go 20 minutes from one in, maybe 25 minutes, uh, typically in Omaha from one side to the other, you could do that. So there's a, a decent uh, interstate loop. Uh, I think the city's trying to figure out how to attract like a lot of places are millennials and keep people here. So, you know, a lot more bike trails have been built over the last seven or eight years. 
you know, lanes have gone away towards biking. Uh, not something you're going to do for about three or four months out of the year in Omaha, um, unless you're you're pretty brave. Um, there's gravel on the streets, and it's it's uh, our our streets can become potholy and truck holy uh, because of that weather. But it's uh, it's a great place to raise family and kids. And we have I've had a lot of people come in for hyperscales or for contractors or hyperscales that were single men and women who have either become married and have kids or they've left Omaha and married and have kids and then they have a fondness for Omaha and often I see them come back. So we we just had one that was a contractor for one of the hyperscale that was that fit that build. He's gonna live south of Chicago for a little while, but I won't be a bit surprised to see him come back. But it's been fun to see those people grow and develop to who they are and have them be friends and we can do business together now. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, the that whole region intrigues me having driven through it and having been to Omaha. Um, I, I was born and raised in the Midwest and I still have a lot of that in me, um, for in a lot of different ways that bleeds through and, uh, having lived in Chicago and California and, um, now in Raleigh, North Carolina, I can't, uh, I can't rule out the reality that I may find myself living in either Texas or somewhere uh, back in the middle of America. And people say, well, Chicago is the Midwest. But as your point made out earlier on in our conversation, Chicago is really Northeast. And it just kind of blows my mind that they keep considering Chicago Midwest when it's really not, um, if you look at it topographically. Um, so it's, I wouldn't surprise if, uh, if I found myself back in Omaha at some, at some point in the near future, the, um, picking your brain, given your background, uh, what was some of the advice that you were given early on in your career or in your life that really, that sticks with you, that you are reminded of, uh, on a regular basis. And I love that you have the background that you have and that you've been, you know, fighting to make things happen uh, for yourself since you were a young age and you'd commented that, you know, you probably missed out on a few things in life, but, um, and that probably is a a reality, but I I question, you know, as I watch my kids play video games and, you know, I'm a gamer myself and I've played God knows how many stupid hours of of video games in my life, you know, could that time have been spent more productively out in the world doing, doing some interesting things. Um, But what was some advice that you, you've been given when you were growing up and going through your career that sticks with you? Yeah, my, uh, I, there used to be a Cushing company for about four generations and they were in Hastings, Nebraska, and uh, they were a food brokerage firm and my dad merged it and it, got, it was done uh, for a lot of reasons. And my, my, uh, my grandfather you know, would tell me that you could do anything you want in life uh, and if, as long as you do it well, and he used the example back then, painting numbers on curves. If you do a really good job and you are the best at it and you, you know, stay good to your word, you're going to be successful at that as, as well as you can make money as a curb painter. So that was, that was something that stuck with me. And being an Omaha guy, um, my, my dad and, and, uh, grandfather both had some Berkshire action going on back in the day. And Warren had said that you can always tell somebody to go to hell tomorrow. You don't have to do it today. And I have um, sometimes I get passionate about something when it's not going right or when somebody's not doing what they said they would do. And they're, you know, not making a delivery happen when they when I'm trying to support a client or a project. I uh, I get a little short. And so it um, 
it's it's true. You don't have to blow somebody up. You can just take a breath. Tomorrow's a new day. Don't don't take a a long term solution to a temporary problem. This is going to be temporary. It's not who you want to be as a professional as a as a leader. So don't be that guy. Um, hold on to that because what what gunpowder you have left after you've blown somebody up. So you don't need to do that. Yeah, it's a good one for both professional and personal uh, to, to take into consideration. Uh, having been married for 15 years, I uh, know that I have to continually remind myself that, uh, especially with also having three kids. Um, yeah. What is what is something that you've experienced or seen recently that you think uh, you know is truly transformational or maybe made you stop and uh, really contemplate something differently? Um, I tell you this whole remodel of what we're going through. Yeah, I've seen a lot of things, and then I've seen things on this project that you still learn. Oh, it's pretty incredible. So we're we're installing cable bus, and I don't know if you've ever done cable bus. This it's a it's a different way of moving power from point A to B. And um, watching how these guys have worked through the process of how to install that has been unique. And I, I know that I'll, I would probably have an opportunity where I'd probably use that product again. And then as we've had people pulling fiber, you look at the ribbon fiber, microfiber, ultra low loss fiber, and the way that they can splice that stuff. And you send a PDF of every strand and prove where you're at, what your loss is, and how fast these guys can do it. And we're talking about just carriers in general. It's pretty freaking cool. It does what they're doing in a trailer. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be amazing to see how that changes, but Man, can you put a lot of fiber in a small space now? It's amazing. Yeah. I will, you know, related to that, I will always remember walking into the Napa of the Americas in Miami and going to that core meet me room area. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but I highly recommend you check it out. It is mind blowing. You literally feel like you're in the movie The Matrix and the one of the last scenes where you've got, you know, all these cables coming out of everything, um, you know, within the Borg ship. Um, it's mind blowing, um, and I love walking into facilities and seeing similar types of uh, dynamics at play. You know, the Weston Building, uh, which I think is WIX right now, they've rebranded yeah. as well. Um, has a similar dynamic going out in one of their rooms, but it's uh, it's pretty cool to watch how how that's evolving. Um, what is a uh, you know I love I love asking this question, and getting the responses. But if there was one piece of advice that someone could have given you specifically when you came into the data center world um, that you wish you had that you maybe didn't know or weren't aware of what can you think of what that piece of advice would be that would have um, maybe helped you out a ton? Well, that's a tough one. That's a good question. I, I had a really good mentor that uh, he used to use the term, aren't you special to I or my peers. Sometimes if we were thinking we were a little full or our sales were a little too full of wind, aren't you special? So don't be too full of yourself. Uh, that'll, that'll won't play well for you. But I, I think it, for me, if there's something I wish I had had was um, more exposure to the boardroom side of it, the the bigger boys club of how the politics matter to your, even as you're down in the organization, why what you're doing matters at the top. 
So if you had somebody that would really show you your your, your analogy with the finance folks is, is a good part of it. But what if you could have a view as to why it mattered to the business and why you you know have to, have to understand your cost and why you have to understand your commitment and what it means to the business and what the business is going to do with what you're doing. Why you you know if there's a a big gear that moves is another one that person I worked for used. He, he said when you make a decision. And you turn the gear, you've got a bunch of other little gears underneath you that move. So before you turn that gear, make sure you think about you want to disrupt all the other gears that are busy working. Um, with another, another, he was a great drawer. He was one of the first guy to have a, a an Apple uh, device that he could draw on the, the SE or the Plus. Then he would draw great pictures for us to, to understand this stuff. But it was, it was, um, Understanding where what where your cog uh, matters in the business is important. Yeah, and I would imagine that if you had an employee of yours, you know, just reach out to you and say, "Hey, you know, can I grab thirty minutes of your time uh, over coffee at some point when you're free to ask you a few questions and learn learn that you you jump at that opportunity, right? For sure, I try to do that today. I go, I go down and I'm on site every day and. We go down and uh, I'll have lunch with, you know, everybody. At one point, one-on-ones happen, but we still will go get lunch or do something. And uh, Omaha's maybe different than maybe a bigger city relative to, you know, mass kind of way there. And then the restaurants are largely open. And we'll uh, we'll have that time together. And it's important to answer questions that they have. And I, 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 I use the term care hard. I like to care hard. It's kind of like work hard. I like to, I do care about what they're doing with their daughters or what they're doing or how are they getting enough time away or where are they at as people. It totally matters to the success of the business. So I, I know, I feel like I know what's going on in everybody's lives. And that's, that, that's another one that everybody could do, no matter what level you're at. Know your, know your colleagues, know your, your peers, your job to career. It's not just a job. Um, you know, if you want it to be, you can make it a career. That's great advice. Um, what, what's something that we haven't covered in this conversation that, uh, you you hope we could have covered or, or would like to cover and let our audience to know about? Um, you know, you mentioned you're in Carolinas. I've got a brother that's in Huntersville and I was one of the, one of the deals that I worked on with CBRE was a, uh, T5 was trying to sell a building in Kings Mountain and I was representing a Indian based group that ended up buying it, but we, we looked at San Antonio and other places, and I really thought that that market was a good market. Uh, there's people that are really good, but there's, you know, Duke Energy was really great to work with. But I, I thought it was interesting that you know you're in, in of places you could live and where you live. Uh, you're in a beautiful part of the country, so I think it's a great market that is not necessarily appreciated as well. And in the market that I do watch, um, I love Omaha. I love it for my grandkids are here and my family's here and. But I, uh, I think that's a great market that you're in as well. And I don't know that it gets appreciated. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah, man. I'm, I'm working hard trying to uh, get in front of the right people uh, to help them understand why it is such a great market. And I could have a whole podcast just on that, that topic alone. But um, I'm working on it these days. So uh, I'd love to talk to you offline about, about <laughs> what's going on. That'd be in great. Well, Todd, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me today. Um, the I know you have a lot cooking over there, and I hope people will take the time to reach out and, and talk to you to learn more on all, a lot of different levels. If they want to do so, what is the best way for them to get hold of you? 
Uh, my email is tcushing at 1623 Farnham. So that's C-U-S-H-I-N-G. Just tcushing at 1623 Farnham. And I take it 1623farnham.com gets people to uh, your website? Correct. Uh, 1623farnham.com would get us to the website. And we have, uh, boy, GSA has been way beyond awesome and helping us become a better brand, a better a better messenger of what we are, who we are, where we want to be. And then, seriously, I give a shout out to them all day long. They have, they have drastically improved who we are and the message we're trying to get out. So, yeah, our website tells you a lot, and it's only going to get better. So if you've looked at it, go back because it changes all the time. Yeah, just, just so our audience knows, JSA is a firm that specializes in PR uh, and marketing for specifically uh, telecommunications, data center, and related uh, IT companies. And they they are one of the major players in the market and have actually been very helpful for me lining up interviews with folks like you uh, and a handful of others over the, over the last couple of years. So big shout out to JSA. And if you're looking for a, a firm, give them a, give them a shout. Um, well, thank you, Todd, so much. I appreciate you taking the time. And the last question I have for you, uh, do you love data centers? I love data centers. I love data centers. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate it, man. Enjoy the day. Thank Hopefully you. Don't get too cold too soon out there. Pleasure. See ya. Bye-bye. Be safe. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.